Hi, it's Cynthia Morris. I'm a creativity coach in Denver, Colorado. When I read Lynchkin, I was sparked by some of the ideas. I, some of them were both a bomb and also a challenge to me, and I wanted to discuss them, so I immediately thought of Mark McGinnis, a colleague in London, and I asked Mark to join me in conversation about some of these concepts because I think it can help us and perhaps some of our clients to understand and apply some of what Seth Godin's talking about in Lynchpin. Thanks for agreeing to join me on this call, Mark. Hey, Cynthia. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I think it's a really nice idea because, you know, as soon as I, I've read Lynchpin enthusiastically myself, I enthuse about it to clients and tell them it's one of the books they should be reading. And I think today's call is a really nice opportunity for the two of us to start to share some of our uh, action orientation as coaches and help people to start to think about how they can apply the principles and the ideas of Lynchpin to their own career and to their own work. So um, and a nice thing that we've got for today's session actually is we put out a, an invitation to people to send us some questions in about their experience of wrestling with some of the issues that were raised in Lynchpin. So as we go through the call, we're going to do our best to offer some suggestions and, and ideas on, you know, in response to these questions. Um, but before we go any further, I think probably what I should do is just give an outline of Lynchpin to, you know, those of you who haven't got around to reading the book yet. So essentially Seth's argument in Lynchpin is that the world of work has changed. You know, in the old world, what he calls the factory situation, we used to be rewarded for being a cog in a machine, being efficient, productive, and following the rules. Um, and Seth extended the idea of the factory not just to the, the production line, but also to the, to the office, the, the typical white-collar cubicle city. Um, and Seth is saying now the world has changed, and essential skills are things like creativity, taking initiative, what he calls emotional labor, which we'll touch on uh, a, a bit more later on. And, you know, he introduces this, this idea that anybody can be an artist, whether or not they carry a paintbrush, you know, whether they're working in the arts. He says any job, any role is an opportunity for us to do art. In other words, to bring some artistry to our role. And this leads into his idea of the linchpin. Now, a linchpin on uh, uh, an old-fashioned wagon wheel was the pin that went through the axle and actually held the wheel on the axle. So it was a tiny little unassuming bit of wood. But if you took it out, the whole wagon fell apart. And he, he says this is the role of the linchpin, whether it's in an organization or a market or any kind of work situation, the linchpin is that indispensable person, the person that if you take away the whole thing collapses. So his basic argument in the book is that we need to be linchpins. We need to work to make ourselves indispensable. And there are different ways of doing that. So it could be through your communication skills and, and your ability to bring people together and, 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 and help them work together better. It could be your creativity. It could be the emotional labor you bring, which is um, very briefly, the, the kind of the willingness to, to deal with the, the, the tough, challenging, emotional uh, issues that come up in work, not not just doing the, the stuff that's easy or that's that's task oriented. Um, <clears throat> the ability to manage complexity, to take leadership, um, people who have got 
a lot of knowledge of a domain and or a unique talent. These are all ways that you can be indispensable, that you can become a linchpin. Um, and towards the end of the book, he says rather provocatively, there's no map. You know, there are no detailed steps. There's no instruction manual to becoming a linchpin. It's something that you need to make up as you go along and create your own map. Now, I don't know about you, Cynthia, but for me, in fact, I, I can probably guess your feeling on this, but I'd be interested to hear what you think. Um, you know, when I read the book, it was a kind of a sense of recognition. You know, this is what I've been trying to do all along in my career. And I'm sure there are lots of people listening to this who can relate to that, who, who already see themselves as artists, whether they're working in the arts or not. But I also know that there are others listening that, for whom this is probably quite a new and, a, and maybe even a scary prospect. So what we'll try to do is, is to make this call helpful to people on both sides of, of, of that fence. Uh, what about you, Cynthia? What, you know, how did, did you get that sense of recognition when you first read the book? Oh, definitely. It was definitely a validation of a lot of the work that I see myself going through and my clients with the emotional labor of creating, overcoming resistance. So it reminds me of Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind, which really validated the, the work of the creative, creative right. person, the absolute necessity of the creative person in the marketplace as a business um, necessity. And it also challenged me. There are some things about it that I don't agree with, um, and I'll talk about that later. So I'm kind of in both. It was it was a bomb. It comforted me. I thought, yes, this is me. These these are my mm -hmm. clients. And it also challenged me. And that's why I wanted to have this call and perhaps provoke some coaching um, perspective on it. How do you take those things that are provocative to you and actually take action and use them in your work. Right, okay, so let's, you know, we'll, we'll get into that very shortly, but I think it's a very good point you make about Dan Pink, which is that Seth and Dan are really part of a, they're identifying a, a wider trend, which is movement towards what's called the creative economy, where creativity and innovation become the key uh, differentiators, sources of competitive advantage for companies. And Seth's pointing out that as an individual, this is your key source of advantage. This, this is your ability to harness your own creativity, your own uh, emotional intelligence, the kind of the right brain skills that Dan talks about in a whole new mind. These are much, you know, they're not just a nice to have. They're not the, you know, the kind of skills that you, you, you follow because it's, it's following your heart, although that is a big part of it. Actually now, because of the way the world is, there's an opportunity now for people who would see themselves as artists, who would have a natural facility with emotional intelligence, um, to use this to deliver a lot of value and also to obviously to further their own careers. So I think maybe we, we could start off by considering this idea of you know, Seth's challenge to us to, to be artists. I mean, he says in the book, art isn't only a painting. Art is anything that's creative, passionate, and personal. And great art resonates with the viewer, not only with the creator. You know, he says, what makes someone an artist? I don't think it has anything to do with a paintbrush. You can be an artist who works with oil paint or marble, sure. But there are also artists who work with numbers, business models, and customer conversation. Art is about intent and communication, not substances. Now, 
personally, I'm quite, I'm quite on board with that statement. But I know that there are some, particularly within the artistic community, who, are, you know, they, they've taken slight exception to that. I mean, we had quite a lively discussion on lateral action when I wrote a, a piece based on this called "Can Anyone Be an Artist?" And there was some artists say with a capital A coming in saying that you know Seth was encroaching on their territory um, my response is that there's a distinction between someone who's got a vocational description like you're an artist with a paintbrush or personally I'm, I'm a poet that's I would say you know that that's my kind of vocational description but I think you can also as Seth is doing use the word artist uh, to denote a level of accomplishment and the idea of bringing artistry to your work, whatever it is that you do. So I think basically Seth's challenging all of us to raise our game, to approach our work as art. And, you know, it's a very different mindset to so just clocking in and out and doing what you're told. Um, and personally, I don't see the point in approaching it any other way. I mean, we spend so much time working. To me, it's an opportunity to, to, to create something remarkable and artistic what you know whatever field of work you're in oh absolutely and it's funny because the part that i highlighted was the sentence that came right after what you um excerpted an artist is someone who uses bravery insight creativity and boldness to challenge the status quo right and to me that part of it really that really takes it out of the definition of are you making art are you creating a painting or a sculpture or a, mm -hmm. a written piece of work. It's more about how you're being. And and what I take this um, expansion of the definition to artists to be, to me it equates to being a leader. Right. Are you leading? Are you choosing to express your authenticity? Are you being, and what you said earlier, like it's absolutely vital now to be yourself, to express yourself. What is your gift? What is your art? and to offer that. There's no more hiding in the in the trees pretending you're fitting in. If you want to, especially as an entrepreneur, if you're looking to succeed, you have to absolutely be an expression of your own uh, authenticity. You can't pretend otherwise. Um, so when I first started my coaching practice, this quotation by M.C. Richards, all the arts we practice are apprenticeship, the big art is our life, mm -hmm. that really guided me thinking about art in a new way that it's, it's both what you're making and how you're making it, how you're being in the world, how you're sharing it, your intention. And that's something that no one else will ever be able to duplicate. And in, in terms of becoming indispensable, that's how you be indispensable is by being absolutely true to your yourself and what you need to express. I don't think we, we or anyone should spend too much time quibbling over what is an artist or what isn't. To me, what, the way Seth has defined it is very expansive, and I think it's, um, I think it's empowering to, to me and to my clients and to hopefully to a lot of other people. Okay, so, you know, that, that's the issue of, of artistry. Let, let's move on to this idea of the linchpin and, you know, that Seth's question are you indispensable you know because he says it's it's a step-by-step -step process is it's a path by which you develop the attributes that make you indispensable so he's saying it's you know linchpins are made they're not born this is it's not something that we can put people up on a pedestal and say oh well that's somebody who's a genius or who's got such superhuman abilities i could never do that he's saying challenging us and saying no this is a skill you can learn how to do it 
and we've actually all got responsibility to do that. Um, and you know, what, what's your take on that, Cynthia? Well, I get a little hung up on the word indispensable because I don't <laughs> right. believe that. You know, talking about I'm the thing. Don't quibble about words and definitions, and then I, I get hung up here. So. Where I get hung up, it's interesting to me. There's something there that, that challenges me. And as a coach, I look at that in myself, and I would challenge my clients to look at where they get stopped with a definition or a word. But I just take the word indispensable. I don't think anybody is really indispensable in any situation. And so I think it's an inflammatory word that was used purposefully to incite people to really sit up and pay attention. Um, it's kind of like a, a question that a coach would ask a client to get that client out of a rut. So I, I don't think that that indispens indispensable is attainable, but just for the sake of using that to challenge me and stretch me, I'm I'm interested in that. How how does this? He points to the abilities of a linchpin in the in the back of the book, and if I were to look at that list and say where do I need to stretch and grow, which one of these am I Am I hiding out a little bit? Where could I stretch and grow to be more toward indispensable? Um, that's a way that I can orient myself to the to the word. Do you, what do you think about the word indispensable and how he's using it? Um, uh, well, I, I like it. I know what you mean. That you know, strictly logically, nobody is completely indispensable. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that, it, as you say, you know, this is the kind of question a coach could ask a client to shake them out of a rut and I think it's fairly clear that's what Seth is trying to do with with all of us really is to shake us out of a rut and get us to aim high you know I mean clearly you know the planet will carry on perfectly well without you or I should you know but at the same time while we're here we've got an opportunity to make a difference and I think what Seth is doing is saying look aim really high make your even if you, you're never going to completely obtain it do what you can to make yourself as useful as you can as valuable as you can you know the kind of person that people would really want to have around you know and and would miss if you weren't there well and i think it's no mistake that he's using this word specifically in this time when companies are laying people off in droves and and so there's a certain desperation, how do I keep my job or how do I get a job that's even better? And so that's why I think he's using this now. And, and I look at it more, what, both from an employee and an entrepreneur's point of view, what am I contributing that's absolutely vital and something of, of great use for, for my employer or for my audience? So to me, it's more... I like the thought of contributing more than being indispensable, but I think that could be a useful word for others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, what it, what it boils down to is what are you contributing? It, it's not what are you taking. Um, okay, you know, and it's an interesting point because obviously, you know, I think many of us are realizing that we're not as indispensable as maybe we thought we, we were even, you know, a few months ago. And I think... You know, there's the whole issue of what kind of career security is there, you know, because the old idea of having the job for life or having a fairly steady, secure job, well, that's clearly fading. It's And people are starting Long to think, gone. well, yeah, I mean, what can I do? What kind of security can I find? And, you know, I think probably the, the answer is that, you know, just, just like being indispensable, there's no ultimate security, but Seth's 
encouraging us to look at well if you're making a contribution on a bigger scale then that's the best kind of security that you're going to have you know so it could be within an organization it could be as an entrepreneur as a public figure or you know as, as a spokesman I mean I guess Seth is indispensable in the sense that he's become a spokesman for this entire uh, industry or this field of, of the new marketing um, and it's in, there's an interesting question that Mark Dykeman's raised one of the responses to our invitation for questions um, he says at what point should a linchpin decide to go from being an employee to being an entrepreneur now I'm not sure if Mark's trying to present this as an inevitable progression or a, or a, or a what-if progression because I think you don't necessarily need to become an entrepreneur to be a linchpin you know um, and I think most of the examples in the book are actually employees so I would say the key question is who do you want to help what impact do you want to make what work situation is going to give you the most leverage to do that so it could be that staying within the company is is going to be your best chance of having that impact or possibly reinventing your role within that or it could be that setting up on your own could do that or it could be you know a third option like I mean there's plenty of people who are working within organizations and yet they have a public platform they have a blog or they have a Twitter feed or or some other kind of you know they speak at conferences they start to become known as thought leaders um, and, and spokespeople on issues in, in for their industry so I don't think it's necessarily such a black and white issue um, what about you Cynthia I agree and I think if you're just thinking in larger terms in terms of what is my gift what's the impact I want to have and upon whom and what do I want to give um, then then you don't get so caught up in how you're delivering it I think um, again I equate a lot of what that's talking about in Lynchpin to everyday leadership. That mm -hmm. Everyone can lead, one can take a stand, offer a gift, and speak up. And it doesn't even have to just be in the realm of commerce and, and work. Well, yeah, I mean, family, friends, um, walking down the street, you see something happening. I, I think you're right. Every day there's, there are situations that are presented to us. There are problems that are presented to us. And you can, you know, walk on by, you can sit quietly and keep your nose clean or you can step up to the plate and say hey I can see this I'm going to make a difference and I think all of us have to make right. those decisions you know right and in every moment I'm sorry two of the scenes in the book that I just just this thrill me make me laugh are when he is on the airplane and he says okay this is not going anywhere let's I'll rent a car everyone can yeah. come with me free or when he says I'm taking a taxi who wants to come with me Nobody speaks up. Nobody says, I'll go. And I just laugh at that missed opportunity. And I yeah. think um, so much of what's happened in the world um, in the past five or so years is really, it's really shaking everybody out of a stupor. And Seth's tone and his message throughout all of his work and in this book, he's really here. He's helping to shake people out of that stupor. And when he describes those scenes, I just see people so unwilling to step out of bounds. And I'm hoping this book... Um, and his work and this conversation helps to shake people up and out of their bounds and to, to stand up and speak up um, to take opportunities as they come and ra rather than just be in a kind of stupor. Yeah, and that leads in nicely to the next topic, which is all about this idea of gifts. 
Um, and, you know, it's interesting to see of all the questions that came in, this was the issue, this idea of, of giving a gift, even though it's not, you know, it's not in the small print, it's not in the contract, you could just walk on by, but actually stepping up to the plate and doing more than is required, solving problems, doing the hard emotional work of, of dealing with a situation, taking responsibility, you know, this is the issue around which some of the most quite telling questions came up. So before we get on to those, I'll just read out a little bit of what Seth says about gifts, because he's, he's talking about this idea that we're living in a kind of a hybrid economy. But on the one hand, you've got the capitalist system, which is about what can I get? And on the others, he's, he's talking about this old idea of the gift system, the gift economy, where its status doesn't come from having and receiving and an amassing wealth. It comes from giving it away. Um, so he says, in the linchpin economy, the winners are the artists who give gifts. Giving a gift makes you indispensable. Inventing a gift, creating art, that is what the market seeks out. And the givers are the ones who earn our respect and attention. And he says somewhere else that art has so much power, it represents the most precious gift that we can deliver. Now, for me, this really resonated because you know, one of my interests is the, is the impact of motivation on creativity and performance. And there's an enormous amount of research that demonstrates that when you're talking about complex, challenging, creative work, i.e. the kind of thing that linchpins spend their day on, extrinsic rewards like money and status, if you're too focused on that, then it actually harms your performance. If you really want to perform well at, some, at this kind of work, you need to focus on intrinsic motivators. That means the motivations that are part of, you know, intrinsic to, to, to the work itself. So things like the purpose of the work, you know, beyond earning money. You know, who is, what difference is this making into the world? What does it mean to you? How, you know, what is it that fascinates you about it? What, what pleasure do you take in doing it, in exercising your talents? So for me, the important point I take from this idea of the gift is, yes, of course, we need to take care of the bills. We need to make sure we get paid at the end of the month or the end of the contract, however we work. But when it's time to work, you should be focused on the work itself, not the rewards, because that's the only way you're going to do an outstanding job. So, for instance, if I, um, you know, I spend a lot of time blogging and, and I know you do as well, Cynthia, that. You know, the hard-headed response, reason for me to do that is because it, it builds my audience, it brings me business, it, it, it gets me known. I can justify it in terms of the business results. But actually, when I'm doing it, it's I'm in a completely different mindset. You know, some people say to me, well, aren't you a bit concerned that some people will just read your blog for free and take all the value out of it and then you won't earn any money from them. And I say, no, I'm not concerned at all. I think that's a great outcome. I think it's fantastic that there's thousands of people out there reading my stuff, um, many of whom are never going to spend a penny in my business. But, you know, when I get up in the morning, I'm thinking I get a chance by publishing online. You know, I get my needs taken care of, but I also get a chance to make a difference to the world, to put something out there and you know, when I hear stories of people who say, well, I read an ebook you wrote or an article you wrote and it had this impact on me, you know, to me, that's tremendously motivating. I mean, I don't know what your take is on this, Cynthia. 
Well, you said that you're in a completely different state when you're writing for your blog or you're creating those things. And yeah. to me, a gift and um, it comes from a, a sense of pleasure. It's a total pleasure to develop your ideas, to articulate them in a, in a blog post and to share them. Um, somebody asked, you know, how do I know what my gift is? I think it relates to what we're talking about. It, to me, I look for the aliva meter. What, <laughs> right. You know, like, this is a really simple, I do this with my clients, it's really simple, like, what brings you alive? What gives you that sense of thrill and um, uh, edginess? It's not just like, oh, it makes you feel good and happy. There's the danger, there's the thrill, that edge of creativity. And for me, um, I've been blogging for a long time and writing for a long time, and I started to get a little bit less pleasure from doing that. I wanted to stretch and explore other media, and so I started doing videos. Mm-hmm. The Alive meter went off the chart, and it was so much fun. It, it is so much fun. It's great pleasure, and it's a total gift. I have no real way of knowing how it's impacting my business, except people are enjoying it. My blog stats are, and comments are have increased, but it, it almost doesn't matter because it's so much fun. It feels like such a gift. I almost don't. I don't have anything to do with how it's received. All that I have to do is show up and share it and, and keep enjoying it. So to me, the the key point is, is it is it pleasurable? Is it thrilling? Does it bring you alive? Because if it does, chances are it's going to be received in that same um, vein, that same sense of aliveness and joy. I think that's a really good example. you know. And the, and the question came from Arlen, who left a, a comment, I think it was on lateral action, saying, you know, how do we determine what our gift is? And... Um, uh, Oh no, sorry. It was it was from Beth, um, Bethany Page, and you know, so she's a writer and she's looking at how do I? I love helping people create writing they're proud of and that gets results. Um, I've started a business. How do I stand out from the crowd? How do I become different from every other writer and editor out there? And I think your example of the was it the the alive meter you say that lights yeah. up yeah. Um, it's a great one because I mean I, I watch your videos and I can see how full of enthusiasm and energy you are and I can hear, even hear it in your voice as you're you're talking now or just just a couple of moments ago maybe people could actually you know re- rewind the tape at this point because I think it's really important that you know Beth and anyone else who's listening to this trying to decide how do I know what my gift is you're being given lots of clues as you go through your life as you go through your work at some points you will light up the enthusiasm will go off the scale the energy goes up and I think it's no coincidence as Cynthia pointed out that at that point quite often you'll notice the response from the world gets stronger. So, Cynthia, you said, and I know you're not doing it just for the web stats, but you you see the web stats go up when you started producing the TV uh, series. Clearly, that's starting to resonate with your audience. So, so Beth and others, I would say, notice when you light up. I mean, I like Stephen King. He talks about it as the, the, the Geiger counter. He says it clicks when you're close to what you're supposed to do. So, notice when you click, when you're a live ometer lights up and then also keep an eye on how that relates to the aliveometer of people around you because one of the, the clues I got fairly early on as a coach was I'd be working with clients on all kinds of different issues and you know most of them were, were really happy with what they got some more some less 
but the ones who got really excited were the artists and the creatives and that was when I realized hey I'm onto something here not only do I enjoy working with these people but I'm getting this enthusiasm this energy back from them so really look out for that one last thing I'd like to say about the Aliva meter is that it's such an incredibly useful tool to use when you're trying to make that decision about what is my gift or what do I want to focus my attention on because if you're stuck in analysis um, thinking about something trying to make a decision and going from your logical mind that's often where resistance and your inner critic can live and, and can cause a lot of doubt and confusion and you can spend a lot of time there and when I use the Aliva meter on my clients I ask them how do you, how do you feel when you say that where's the Aliva meter it's instantly clear and they instantly know and even if they're afraid um, of what they want to choose because it's risky and it challenges them it helps to save a lot of time and, and confusion about what to do and what path to choose so I highly encourage you to try the Aliva meter when you ask yourself should I do this how alive do you feel when you consider that choice yeah, the, I mean, the way I, I put it to clients is, well, what, what's your body telling you about this? Check in with the actual physical sensation. And as you say, once you tune into that and you really feel the emotion, you know, in your gut, then there's usually no more discussion. There's no more analysis. You know, you know what you want, even if it's scary. Yeah. So, okay, so let's move on to one of the, you know, the really hottest issue that, that came up out of the questions, which is, what do you do if you give a gift? and you put your heart and soul into it and then it's rejected or if it's not appreciated and we had several people asking variations of the, the same question so I'll try and just give a, a brief summary so we've got Hashim, uh, Hashim Warren who um, talked about that people some people that he thought were linchpins were laid off and um, you know he, he feels like you know he thought they were linchpins but he says they were selected for this based on their salary and not the work that they did um, you know and people were really shocked that these people left and he said I remember walking down the street wanting to write Seth Godin an email explaining that there's no such thing as being indispensable um, you know and his question is how do you become in indispensable at a job that doesn't value anything but keeping costs low um, Arlen chimed in um, she said you know I, it's not that I don't think going above and beyond is an important thing to do it's just that I've learned as you apparently have also that we must be prudent with our gifts and be mindful of cast not your pearls before the swine you know so her question is similar to Hashim's how do we practice wise gift giving um, Mark Dykeman uh, pops up with the same question even more bluntly what do you do when a gift is refused or rejected um, so I think, you know, first thing I want to say is when you give a gift, when you really put your heart and soul into something and it's rejected, that's going to hurt, you know. And I think this is part of the emotional labor of being a linchpin is putting yourself on the line in this way and really caring and really committing and really being passionate about it. And as we all know, when that's rejected, it hurts a lot more than if you were just playing it safe and following the rules. So to an extent, I'd say it's, it's inevitable that you make yourself vulnerable when you commit to doing something. Um, specifically around Hashim's question, how do you become indispensable at a job that doesn't value anything but keeping costs low? Well, 
I would say, you know, if that's the question, then you don't. I mean, the whole drive of Lynchpin is to look out or carve out a position where you are valued more than a cog in a machine. And if you're in a situation where there's an employer who really doesn't value people more than this, you know, at, at some point you've got to ask yourself, should I go somewhere else? You know, or at the very least, you think, well, if people are not looking for linchpins at work, then where else could I be a linchpin? And I know, actually, I know Hashim is, is busy doing some really interesting projects of his own, so I'm not worried about him in particular, but I think for anybody who's feeling trapped in a work situation, think about what Seth says in the book. He says, find a boss who can't live without a linchpin. For the system to function, both sides have to opt in, both giving and getting. You know, um, and tempting as it may seem, I don't think we need to necessarily dismiss people as swine, although, you know, I think we've all been there. Um, but just recognize that maybe with these people in this situation, they're not the people for you. They're not your tribe. Um, and it may be a painful decision, but you might need to go and find the people who are. You know, I mean, I've only really had two proper jobs in my career as an employee. And in both of those, I kind of hit a wall of disillusionment when I realized that the management weren't all that interested in what we were doing or the ideas that I was bringing to the table. And I kind of realized I'd have to look elsewhere if I wanted to, to find the kind of satisfaction and make the kind of impact that I was looking for. What and about you? Well, right there, Mark, that's where you made the decision that you decided beyond yourself um, that you had something to give and it wasn't about you. You had bigger work to do. And mm -hmm. it's being in, a, um, being in a, a suit that doesn't fit you, you decided you weren't going to wear it anymore. And, yeah. and, and there may be other situations where people will stay in a job. There are all kinds of implicit and explicit contracts in, in, in any situation, in an yeah. situation how are you taking responsibility for yourself um, and for what you're giving? Uh, so I think that's part of it in terms of the employee situation. But this is what to me was so interesting about the gift notion that Seth was talking about, this concept of reciprocity, that a gift is not, you don't give a gift with some expectation of something coming back to you. And I think that's the hard thing to find balance in, especially if you're doing doing a business, you put something out, you expect a return. You put a course out, you want people to sign up. But if it's a real gift, it's the nature of a gift is you're giving something and it's not yours. You have no control over how other people are responding. And I learned this in a very painful way when I was leading one of my tours in Paris several years ago. And um, I, I was showing my group all the wonderful things I loved. I wanted them to see and experience. It didn't seem like they were appreciating it like I thought they should. <laughs> and it just heartbreaking to me. And, and now I'm laughing because at the time it was painful, but now I was able to use my leadership training to see that I had no control over anybody else. My job was only to share what I enjoyed, show them, let them follow my lead in their own way. Mm -hmm. And so they maybe they were appreciating it, they just weren't reflecting it in a way that I thought they should. And once I let go of thinking I needed to control or see them experiencing it in a certain way, I had a lot more fun and I think they probably did too. So I say if you're giving, if you're truly giving, and I think this is where everyone has to 
come to that in their own heart and their own expression. You give and you let it go. Mm. It's a tough one, though, isn't it? I mean, because as, as you've said, you know, it, at the end of the day, we do need something for ourselves, even if it's just the sense that we're giving and it's it's not completely falling on on stony ground that we're having an impact. But I think the the way I like to look at it is something Hugh McLeod said on his blog one day that's really stuck with me. He said, if you meet the needs of your audience directly, they will meet yours indirectly. Which, you know, maybe coming back to your training situation, it's you put the gift out there when, when you were running the training, but you didn't have the right to expect those people specifically to accept the gift in the way that you wanted them to do or you know the the way I might think well if I put something out on my on my blog or if I'm working with a client to expect this person today to really appreciate what I'm giving in and, and reciprocate in some way but actually if your your basic stance is to be generous to to really help clients to help your audience to help your colleagues your boss your your customers whoever it is that you're working with over time, if you're in the right situation for you, then indirectly there will be a return, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I asked Chris Brogan about this once because, you know, Chris is an incredibly generous guy with his, with his knowledge, with his time, with, with what he puts out there. And of course, this works for him and his business. And I said to him, you know, how do you do this in a, in a way that you, you've got your integrity? And he's, you know, he was an interesting response came back. He said, well, only you can know what your intentions are you know you know if you're doing it for the right reasons or to get something back um, so I think you know there's a certain amount of self-awareness that you need when you're doing this so you know there's a time and a place for negotiating a contract but when it comes to doing the work and giving the gift you need to be in the place where you're doing it from that that, that place of generosity and you're putting it out there and Maybe you're curious about what comes back, but you're not too attached to any particular result. Right, and I think the way the way to get there is, as you alluded to, the, the your intention, your I call it the stake. You know, what's your stake? What is this right. about? What is my work about? And my work is about. It's not about me. It's about what I want for the world and what I what I want for others. And so. My my part in it is how I express that, how I put it out there, and and if I'm if I'm always connected to my stake and something bigger than me, then it's going to be much easier to not be attached to how it's received, and my ego isn't bruised if people don't like my video or what I write or whatever. Yeah. It's more like have I achieved my have I stayed true to my stake? Am I working for my um, my higher? I don't want to say higher purpose, but that's essentially it. Yeah. Okay, so just, I mean, just one final point before we move on to, to looking at emotional labor. Um, I'd just like to come right back to, to Hashim's question right at the beginning, where, you know, where he described seeing people that he thought were linchpins and then realizing that actually for the management that they weren't. I think another choice other than just, just leaving or putting your, your energies elsewhere is, is having another look at the situation you're in and thinking, well, if these people aren't valued linchpins, who is? if anybody, and having a look at what is really valued by the people in that situation and saying, well, you know, is, is that congruent with my values? Does that align with the way, 
my higher purpose, if you like, to use your your term, you know, because then there might be an opportunity for you to adapt and you know, kind of recalibrate from that point of view. But I think there's always got to be a certain point you say, well, here's the line that I'm not prepared to cross. And I think, you know, again, that's something for each of us to answer on our own, um, you know, lo looking at, at the particular situation that we're in. That's a great point. If their main concern is the bottom line, how do you contribute to that? And if you don't align with that value, then, then you maybe should be elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, so emotional labor. You know, this is another really big topic in the book. And, and Seth says, emotional labor is the task of doing important work, even when it isn't easy. Emotional labor is difficult and easy to avoid. But when we avoid it, we don't do much worth seeking out. And, you know, this was a part of the book that really resonated for me, and I, I know it did for you, Cynthia. Um, you know, because when I started out at, at work, I realized that it was a real shock to me when I realized how many people routinely duck out of emotional labor. You know, they routinely avoid it. So um, they'll send an email instead of meeting someone face to face to have a difficult conversation or they'll hide behind company policy or their, their job title instead of admitting to a mistake and fixing it. Um, you know, as a consultant, I've had the experience that when somebody, you know, when, when I'm up for, for a job or a project and they say they'll get back to me, almost inevitably, if I, if I get a phone call, then I know the answer's yes. And if it's an email, then I know the answer's no. And yet, I've got so much more respect for the ones who make the effort and they will ring and have the conversation or even meet face to face to deliver the bad news. You know, because I'm a big boy, I can take it. <laughs> but the thing is, it's, it's harder to do that in the short term. But in the long term, I would say that a willingness to do emotional labor is probably the single biggest thing that will make you stand out from the crowd. You know, if you're the person who isn't afraid to, to, to not necessarily to go around confronting everybody but just to just to face up to difficulties and to deal with people when they're upset or potentially upset or to do something that is you know it's it's scary it's 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 going outside your comfort zone but if you can do that and if you can get a little bit comf more comfortable with doing that you will stand out you you will be noticed well, it's it was my favorite part of the book because to me it validated so much of the work that a creative person has to do and I maybe this has been named elsewhere but to me this was the first time I'd heard um, the, this part of the creative process given a name and to me that validated it because there's so many people who think oh just do it what's wrong with you <laughs> and it's not it, that's not it there's nothing wrong with you the emotional labor is absolutely inherent to the creative process and when people realize that it's normal what they're going through, that's a huge relief. And then they realize that they can do the emotional labor. When I think about the emotional labor, I think mostly about things that um, overcoming the fears of creating. Is this good? Will this make sense to people? Um, does this make sense to me? How do I sort my ideas and present them? Um, how do I know it, it will be good? What you were just talking about, Mark, I think is really interesting because you were pointing more to the emotional labor of relationships and how yeah. we're collaborating or working with others or making cold calls or difficult phone calls. I think that's so much of what Seth is talking about and what we really need to 
as humans, this is a real place of development. We can't go on alone anymore. We can't go on in isolation and in collaborating is where we grow. And so when I hear you talk about emotional labor, that's what I see. And I, and I love that. Yeah. I mean, there's different kinds, isn't there? There's kind of knowing yourself and, and managing or work, not managing, but working with your own emotions, but also having to deal with relationships and other people's emotions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good point you make about, you know, it's so easy to, to avoid stuff because it feels scary. Well, I think you and I know as coaches that, um, you know, fear is a sign, usually a sign that you're on the right path. You know, yeah. if, if clients, it's what I call the yes, but response, you know, it's what you said earlier on that when people really admit what they want and usually it's bigger than they've owned up to when you, you, you first meet them or maybe they've owned up to for a while, you get the yes, but response. Yes, I want that, but it's scary, you know? Well, and yeah, I'm- so the fear is just like it's yes you have it that's great and go for it anyway. For me, I'm I'm scaring myself all the time with things that I'm doing and and I think I've gotten um, to a place of being a little bit of a thrill seeker in that regard because <laughs> <laughs> I know what's on the other side of the fear once I go through whatever putting out a new show even having this call I was nervous. On the other side, it feels so great and. Yeah. You, such um, incredible infusion of creative and personal empowerment that you can then use to, to go on and do other things. And that's what I want people to know is, you know, the emotional labor, the fear, yes, it's real and yes, it's true. And on the other side is something so much better and so much more rich. I think that's a really nice point to end the call with, you know, the idea that yes, this stuff is difficult and challenging. And there is a, a certain wall of fear that you have to go through if you're going to create anything remarkable. But, you know, once you break through on the other side, then you start to have, you know, the, the feeling of really working to your capacity, really seeing an impact, really feeling you know, the satisfaction of, of using your gifts to the full. Um, and I think that's when you understand what Seth says, that the gift actually rewards the giver. You know, it's not about what you get from the world back. It's the gift is doing it yourself so talking of gifts um you know we're, we're at the end of this call we're making it available as a free download um from our two websites so your uh, original impulse.com for cynthia and lateralaction.com for me um you're very welcome to share this with your friends and colleagues we're also, it's being published under a Creative Commons license, so we'll, we'll, we'll put the terms on the, the site. So basically you, you can download this, you can share it, as long as obviously you're not using it commercially. And we're also putting together a practical worksheet of questions for you to ask yourself and work with about the issues that we've talked through today. So really the way we suggest you use that is, is to go and, and sit down once you've listened to the call and you, you, you're kind of aware of some of the the ideas and the, the goals, the dreams, maybe the challenges that are coming up for you. Read through the worksheet and see which of the questions kind of hit the spot for you. And then you, you reflect on that, write your answers down and use them as a way of helping you reflect and move forward in uh, your journey to become a linchpin. 
So, Cynthia, thanks again very much for uh, suggesting the idea of the call. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I hope people find it useful and interesting. Um, any final points you'd like to make before we say goodbye? I want to thank you, Mark, for receiving the gift of my suggestion, and thank you all for listening. And it's my great hope that you use the book that Seth has written and our questions to to make changes that help grow you and your work. So thank you for listening and enjoy. Okay. Thanks, everybody. And um, like I say, you'll, you'll get the downloads on the website. So originalimpulse.com and lateralaction.com.